You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmoreccc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. That be the lens through which you read the Bible because Paul's not an evangelical. He's not writing to get people to say the sinner's prayer so they can be born again and not go to hell and go to heaven. That is a construct that we create as time goes on. That's not a construct that we find in the original writings of the New Testament. But Paul is working from something much larger than your individual destiny when you die. He's making a proclamation. He's saying, I've got this revelation. It's been hidden for the ages, but now it's became, become clear. In Christ, humanity has been recreated, and you are invited to participate in the new redeemed humanity that God is using to bring redemption to his entire created order. And so he celebrates that in Colossians 5, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and it's important that we let those thoughts help us understand what Paul is saying here in, in Colossians chapter 3. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at a section of scripture that is going to have a list of sins. And evangelicals love passage of scripture that have lists of sins, as long as it's not the sins that we commit. We stay away from those lists, but there's a lot of lists that we can pick and choose from. They're like, I don't struggle with any of these. I'm going to make this the standard of what holiness is, right? We all, we all done these things. And so, so we love these lists of sins and we like to, let, let's go into the Greek. Let's see what this, particularly this sin means and that sin means and how we can construct a plan that we can avoid these and cultivate these actions. And we can condemn people who are committing these actions. And we have the authority of the Bible. That is a foolish way to utilize lists. For one thing, it treats it as though Paul is writing a list of sins that are exhaustive. So if you approach it as, oh, he's trying to point out individual behaviors that we don't need to be committing, which again, I'm not, I'm not saying that he wants us to commit these things. I am saying that we have to be aware of how we're reading the text. Because if you make that a list, okay, so you'll see there are sins of sexuality and sins of speech that we're going to take a look at this morning. And so if you make them a list though, then what you're saying is, okay, I see five different sexually immoral things that Paul is telling me to stay away from. Therefore, I guess if I come up with six, seven, and eight for that list, these are fair game, right? Because he didn't list those in the list. That would be logical if what Paul is doing is trying to create lists of behaviors for us to avoid and to follow. But this is one of the most deadly ways of reading the Bible. That is not what Paul is going to be doing. What Paul is going to do is he's going to be contrasting two ways of living. One way of living is the behavior that's manifested when someone is living from the deep-seated revelation of Christ in me, the hope of glory. I live in union with God, and therefore that means that over time there's a certain atmosphere of my life that ought to be noticeable. And at the same time, if I am still living in bondage to the deception of the lie of separation from God, then that is going to create an atmosphere of my life that's going, to, that's going to give manifestation to these particular behaviors that we call vices. And the point is, observe your behavior to find out where your heart is. But evangelicals don't want to ask the heart question at all. They want to observe the behavior and then read books and come up with plans to discipline themselves to stop doing the vices and start doing more of the virtues. This is an erroneous way of reading the text because that's not, Paul, not what Paul is doing. Paul is writing scripture before we had evangelicals and before we have uh, positive thinking and before we had life coaches. He's not giving you tips for how to navigate your life. He's speaking of a larger revelation that this is what your 
life becomes when you live from the revelation that you are now participating in the new recreated humanity, and this is what your life looks like whenever you are neglecting that revelation and living as though you're still part of that old deception of believing that men and women are separated from God. That's what he's creating with these lists. And so therefore, there's a group of lists of, of vices and virtues, but unfortunately, we don't have time to do both in one sermon. So today's gonna be the negative sermon where I make everyone feel sh ashamed of themselves. And next week, come back and I'll try to build you up from there. Just kidding. But we are just gonna look at the vices today and we're gonna look at the virtues next week. But, but, but what, um, so what Paul is doing here is he's given an explanation of the atmosphere of one's life. So he has these list of vices, and in the middle of all these lists of vices, he puts in these instructive words of the theology, the theological conviction that is undergirding the vices that he's mentioning. And then he sums it all up with this verse that almost seems like it doesn't even apply to what he's been saying. I hope in the, ne in the next half hour, you will be convinced that it actually applies directly to what he's saying. And he celebrates the fact that Christ is all in all. So we're gonna look at the list of vices. Then we're gonna look at the two passages that speak to the theology that inform those list of vices. And then we're going to look at that summary statement in verse 11. So we're looking at verses five through 11. We're gonna chop it up a little bit. So I tried to be detailed in your notes so that it wouldn't be too confusing. The first part we're gonna look at is these list of vices. This is found in Colossians 3, verse 5, and then in verse 8 through 9a, which is to, intended to communicate just the first part of verse 9, because it finishes up the thought of verse 8. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. Then drown in verse eight through nine A, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Now, what you can see is there's a clear category of these two vices, category A and category B. It is a mistake to think that he is actually talking about nine different behaviors. What he is doing is he's clumping together a stack of metaphors for vices that fall under the category of A and vices that fall under the category of B. In other words, he's not trying to pinpoint different behaviors. He is layering metaphor upon metaphor to drive home the point of what he is trying to make about this list of vices. Now, what's important to understand is that Paul is not saying, stop doing the vices and start doing the virtues and then you'll be right with God. Paul is saying, because you are right with God, because you are one with God, you should expect to see a decrease in these vices and you should expect to see an increase in these particular virtues. So that's why verse five, as we switched into this next section, begins with the word therefore, because it is indicative that what Paul is saying rests upon the authority of what he's revealed in Colossians one and in Colossians two. And so therefore he says, therefore, in other words, what he's saying is that Christ is Lord over all and you've been baptized into his death and resurrection. Therefore, this is the way to live. He is being, and these two words are so important for 
maintaining liberation from legalism and reading the testament and reading the new testament scriptures in a way that buttresses the revelation they're trying to reveal there's a difference between reading descriptions and prescriptions the problem is we as evangelicals have been taught to read the bible prescriptively in other words there's something there's a problem i have something i'm doing wrong i'm going to go to the bible like i go to the doctor or the pharmacist get my prescription and then i'm going to do that prescription and things will be better so therefore if i'm reading prescriptively then i'm reading a, a passage like this and going okay he's prescribing to me to stop doing these vices and to start doing these virtues and then i will be better that is not what paul, paul is not writing prescriptively he is writing descriptively when the bible talks about vices and virtues it casts them in the discussion of fruit that's being born from one's life so therefore if i see these vices as the atmosphere of my life the response to that isn't oh i've got to repent and stop doing these vices the, the what i'm supposed to do with that information is say okay where has my heart drifted from living in christ that's the problem. The answer is in not in more discipline. The answer is in reorienting my heart toward Christ so that then the fruit or the atmosphere of my life looks like the virtues of the kingdom, not like the vices of the world. I hope that makes sense. So he is being descriptive here, not prescriptive. And so we look at these list of vices. But his point is, this is how you're called to live because this is in keeping with who you are. Now, this is very, very important because if you think of your own journey or the conversations you have with others, Christians tend to believe that who they are is, 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 um, is defined by the vices and who they're trying to be is defined by the virtues. But the revelation is just the opposite. Who you are is expressed in these virtues and who you are not, who you're learning to understand that you are not or is the person that manifests this list of vices. And so, in other words, what Paul is doing, he's saying, because it's not fitting for who you are, he's not saying change your behavior so that you can be in. He's saying because you're in, that demands a different way of living. And so, so, so that's what he's highlighting here. So then let's look at the list. You are to put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, which is, and he uses these layers of metaphor, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Now you might say, well, what do you mean there's two different categories? I see sex and money here. And, and that's fine, we could have that discussion. There, there, is, there is a point maybe to be made and I would love to eat a sandwich and hear your convictions about it. But what I am suggesting is if we're gonna honor the context, it's not likely that Paul then added something at the end that's completely disconnected to everything else he's been saying. I actually think the greed he's talking about is is a covetousness, an over-desire, and that desire is still rooted in sexual impulse and the way we use other people to gratify those sexual impulses. So you can be greedy for lust in the same way you can be greedy for money is what I'm trying to say. And so I think that even the greed is connected to this kind of category that he's made. Uh, then, then we see the second category. Then it says, but now, put away the following. 
And he says, but now, and then you need to highlight that because Paul is essentially saying, this is who you were under the old humanity, but now this is who you are under the new humanity. And because of that, these are the behaviors, these are the ways in which you should be living your life. But now put away the following. Then he has a different category of list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Now this word slander, now you should be proud of me because I I knew what the time would be like. I knew how hungry we would all be at 1045. And I didn't do this for every single list, which I did start that way. I listed the Greek word for every single one of these like a good evangelical because I wanted to master the list and then felt gently rebuked by the Lord somewhere in the middle of the week and started going in another direction. But I did want to highlight this one. This word slander is actually the word blasphema, blasphemia. It's the word from which obviously we get the English word what? Blaspheme. And it's speech which dishonors God, which we understand that. But what's, this is why it's so important that you're mindful of how you're reading the text. Because is he talking about how we speak to people and then putting one word in there that has to do how we speak about God? He's not. He's bringing all of this together. And so with blasphemia, speech which dishonors God, one commentator says it this way, in this instance, it's blasphemous because in this instance, by reviling a human being made in his image. And then he says, filthy language and do not lie to one another. Now, once again, filthy language. I don't like that translation because I'm from Southern Oklahoma and I just love to curse. I'm just joking. I love those instances where like, were you supposed to laugh at that? Or is that, what's going on there? Uh, No, this is not a sermon to justify your cursing. Uh, There are other ways of doing that. Um, All I'm pointing out is this, and this is what bothers me about when we don't contextualize our translations. Do you know that it could just as easily, this phrase could be, it just as easily be translated as abusive speech. And it's unfortunate that they translate it as filthy language because to me that conjures up a whole different idea. To me that says, I can still be mean to my partner as long as I don't say cuss words while I do it. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying something beyond filthy language. It's saying, are you abusive in the way you use your speech to other people? That's what it's highlighting. But you see what we did? This, I want you to be mindful of this. I want you to start sniffing this out when it's a mile away. Filthy speech speaks to a vertical morality. I'm not gonna say naughty words because I don't want God to be mad at me. So I'm gonna say less than naughty words so he's okay. So I'm not gonna say the big ones, I'm just gonna come up with Christian cussing. So we'll we'll say darn it, consarn it, shoot, darn, cornbread, whatever you wanna add in there. But all you're doing is you're changing the terms. You're not changing the spirit in which you're speaking. And that's what the scripture's talking about. And so, so it's not about that per se, but see, that's, that's controllable, right? My, my vertical morality says these are words that God doesn't like, and these are words that God uh, does like, so I'm gonna say these words, and then I'll judge the people who say the words that he doesn't like very well. It's such a fallacy in the way we are approaching the scriptures. This is not a promotion of some vertical morality of God saying, well, here are the big three, if you, as long as you don't say those, I'll, I'll remain your buddy. But if you start saying those, I'm out of here. No, that, that's, that's not, that, that is not the point. What Paul is highlighting is the impact of a horizontal reality. And I, 
I'm a little cautious because I know I've miscommunicated this point so many times before and it's created real consternation for people. And if I'm lucky, they'll call me and we can clarify it in a conversation. Unfortunately, most people won't call and they'll just go with that interpretation and we have a breach in our relationship. So I'm a little cautious here. But, but what I am trying to say is it is a fallacy that we are overcoming sin to make God happy. God's satisfaction in you is secured in Christ, not in the ebb and flow of your behavior. I mean, that's just theology 101. So to pretend like now we're gonna construct a vertical morality that allows us to remain in God's favor, favor and explains to us why we're not in God's favor is a mistake. Paul is highlighting a horizontal reality. The reason why unbridled desire is a sin is because it allows us to justify exploiting and using other people. The reason why it's not filthy language but abusive speech is because abusive speech affects the way we belittle and harm other people. You see, he is telling us we have got to live our lives according to the evaluation of our horizontal morality. This is easy. This is challenging. And so, um, so then when we're grouping these sins together, some, some, uh, I, the one I like the most is what I believe Paul is doing is he's speaking to sins of exploitation and sins of abuse. Sins of exploitation and sins of abuse. One commentator categorized it this way. These are sins of desire and sins of disunity. And I can see where he's going with that. Uh, another less educated small town preacher from Southern Oklahoma says it this way. These are sins of leeching and sins of speaking. Sins of leeching and sins of speaking. What does that mean? Well, what I mean by that is nothing really different than the other two commentators. Leeching is the parasitic consuming of others to indulge one's excessive desire. It is the parasitic consuming of others to indulge one's excessive desire. Well, Artie, aren't you being a little dramatic? No, I don't believe we are. There's no mistake, and if you're a Christian living in modern America, you're having to make decisions about the onslaught of sexuality and sensuality that is thrown at us on a consistent basis. And, and so it's interesting when people want to come and get some support because they're struggling with some sexual temptation, maybe because of images on the internet. Part of the reason why people stay in that bondage is because when they come to the pastor, they're coming from a sense of vertical morality. And they're saying, pastor, I'm looking at things I shouldn't. Would you pray with me? Could you counsel me? Would you help me? Because I know that God's unhappy with me. And I feel like that I don't have, I can't enjoy God's presence. Uh, I feel condemned. I feel ashamed. All of these things, but they're all rooted in how it impacts them. But what you have to see is, what God is concerned about is all the people who are exploited and harmed in the process of bringing you those images. That is actually the thing ultimately that should move your heart away from taking in inappropriate viewing material. It isn't because God will be nicer to me if I stop watching those naughty pictures. No, it's because God wants to captivate your heart and help you understand that you're part of the force that is supposed to be liberating people who are being exploited. You're not supposed to be participating in that exploitation. 
that you see. That's, that's the difference between horizontal, uh, horizontal and vertical morality. So leeching is the parasitic consuming of others to indulge one's excessive desire. And this could be, I use an example of pornography, obviously, but honestly, it also could be what parents are doing to their children because they're living vicariously through them, hoping that their athletic accomplishments will supersede the parent's athletic accomplishments. That parent has carried insecurity and frustration in their life for years, and now they can redeem that through pushing and pressing and living through their children. The same thing. You're consuming your children as, a, as an effort to satisfy your own desire desire for some kind of notoriety or security or some, and you'll see it too, because you'll see them because they're having like seizures and conniptions in the, in the stadium seats while their kids are out on the thing. You're like, okay, there's someone who's got some misplaced insecurity. I mean, I just want to have signs that say, excuse me, your insecurity is showing and hand them out at, at football games. No, no, I'm just passionate about my team. No, you're insecure and you're living vicariously through your kids and you're going to destroy him by doing that. So stop. So that's what it is, it's leeching. It's the parasitic consuming of others to indulge one's excessive desire. And then sins of speaking. It is the abusive use of speech to control, belittle, intimidate, or control others. This is the heart of what Paul is highlighting in these behaviors. And then he gives us the why. Some the reasons why we do not participate in these activities. And it starts in verse six, because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Now, again, what frustrates me in evangelical circles is what people will, will own that, will, will um, make that about themselves and say, oh, I've got to stop doing that because these behaviors make God angry. No, what makes God angry is the people that are destroyed in our pursuit of these behaviors. It is not him going, oh, I wish he hadn't thought that naughty thought. Now I'm kind of upset with him. That's not it. It's when we engage our indulgence in such a way that we are harming and exploiting and hurting other people. This is what rouses God's wrath because we have been created to be our brother's keeper. We should not be exploiting one another. We should be supporting, loving, and serving one another so that we can all flourish in God's kingdom of shalom. That's the goal here. That's, it's not about petty rule keeping. Free yourself from that so that you can show up in the earth as the redemptive force that God has created you to be. But you can't be that if you live by small-minded vertical morality. It's only when you catch a vision of God's spirit seeking to manifest his fruit through your life, through your horizontal morality, that we begin to make that transformation. So he says, God's wrath is coming upon these things. And then 9b through 10, he says this, and I'm picking up the but now because the but now is mentioned in verse eight, but it's still controlling the thought of verse 9b. But now, since you have been put off, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So we have to ask a question. These metaphors are very important because if you grew up in church, you were told what you're supposed to believe about these metaphors. Maybe what you were told was accurate, but maybe it wasn't. It's possible that what you were told about these metaphors is erroneous. So let's look at the context of the scripture. What does he mean by putting off the old self and putting on the new self? In general, the churches I've grown up in, the conversations I've been a part of, 
people tend to interpret that in terms of pre-conversion and post-conversion behaviors. Like these are all the things that you did before you knew Christ and this is what you should be living uh, uh, after you know Christ. But here's the problem with that thing because evangelicals love to indoctrinate their children. So most of us came to the Lord when we were like five years old. So we're like trying to understand, well, honestly, most of the awful things I did came about 10 or 20 years after I started following Jesus because I was five years old. I didn't know all the possibilities of how I could indulge my flesh at that age. That came much later on. So I don't really like for people to see this as pre-conversion and post-conversion. Now, is there some application? Sure, it can be applied that way, but the problem is that this communicates a one-time crisis over a process. And if we could just get evangelicals to understand salvation is a lifelong process, not a one-time decision. Oh, so much could be transformed about how we express our spirituality and our community. But if you look at the scripture, the metaphors that are used in scripture are process metaphors not one-time events, not crisis metaphors, where there's a crisis, wasn't in Christ, now I'm in Christ. Um, it's, it's more nuanced than that. So, although it can be applied that way, it communicates a one-time crisis rather than a process, and our salvation is always a present-in-the-moment process. Now, I should probably pause here and clarify something. I'm talking about salvation as in aligning my life to the revelation of Christ in me, the hope of glory. If you're still having a discussion about heaven and hell, I don't condemn that discussion. That's fine to have that discussion. But the reason why I have to clarify, when I say process, I don't mean one day you're bound for hell and one day you're bound for heaven. That's why I have to clarify that. Because I use those words less and less because they're not in the scripture. Those are constructs that happen after the writing of scripture, we start talking, well, this is all about eternal destiny. Well, not if you look at Jesus, it's about what you do right here on earth. And then specifically, it's about your interaction with other people. That is the emphasis in the New Testament. Heaven and hell destinations, that happens after the evolution of Christian theology and the erection of a system of authority that needed to control the masses. But more on that later, we can talk about that over a Reuben. My point is, I'm not saying that Based on your behavior, you're never sure if you're going to heaven or hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying salvation as the present tense experience of living from the revelation of my union with God, this is a process. It takes time and, and it takes thinking and it takes growing and it takes learning. So our salvation is always a present in the moment process. Paul reminds the Colossians that they are being renewed, look this, as they grow. This is what I hate about Christ's salvation, is it doesn't cast the necessary vision to be saying the sinner's prayer, not just when you're seven years old at False Creek, but every single moment of your life, that you're living in the conscious awareness of your need for the living presence of Christ, to save you and to lead you, to transform you. So he reminds the Colossians, they're being renewed as they grow in knowledge so as they grow in knowledge, the image of the creator is being renewed in them. Now catch that. As they grow in knowledge, the image of the creator is being renewed in them. And it is in living from an awareness of my being in the image of the creator that transforms everything. It is my recognition that you 
are in the image of my creator that is intended to transform my relationship with you and how we interact with one another. Our salvation is an ongoing process of becoming more aware of who we are and thus increasingly reflecting the image of our creator. As we increasingly become aware of who we are, we then manifest the image of our creator. That's what's happening in this process of walking with the Lord. Now, the scriptures use many words and contrasts and metaphors to communicate this same basic idea. Now, I know I'm no longer a youth pastor and you are in my youth group, but I want you to repeat this phrase. The same basic idea. So if we don't respect the way in which the scripture is written in metaphor, we overcomplicate things. So, so what, what, what is happening is there are these metaphors and they're not disconnected. It's not that this metaphor means one thing, that metaphor means another, this metaphor means something else, this metaphor. If you do that, that gets so complicated and convoluted. Basically, there are two metaphors that run straight through the story of the scriptures. And once you kind of orient your brain about recognize them, you'll see them whether you're in Genesis or whether you're in the book of Revelation, these categories. Now the terms are different, categories are the same. So here, here are the, some of the metaphors that we encounter for th- this dynamic. Number one, tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's one, that's one of the first metaphors that we see. Then we get into the giving of the law and the metaphors are life, or death. Then you get into Proverbs and wisdom literature, and then the metaphors are wisdom or foolishness. Then if you're taking the whole story as a whole and you step back, the metaphors are old covenant and new covenant. Or here's one that's significant, particularly from Romans 5, if you want to go spend some Bible nerd time this afternoon, in Adam or in Christ. In some ways, the entire story of the Bible can come down your identification with the Adam life or the Christ life. It really can. That's how the whole thing's cast from beginning to end. And so that's one of the predominant metaphors in Adam or in Christ. I like this one because this is the one that says, there's a former creation in Adam and it looks like this. And there's a new creation in Christ and it looks like this. That's how Paul talks about it in his writings or former creation or new creation, old humanity or new humanity, or it uses the phrases old self or new self like it does right here in our book, in our passage. The point is our behavior becomes the barometer that reveals whether we are living from an internal revelation of who Christ is in us or from the deception of a false separation from God. Before we can check our sin, you got to check your source. And that is the gift that the bondage of sin brings to the follower of Jesus. It is a revelation that I have drifted from my source. Therefore, the primary answer isn't to change my behavior, but to do the hard work of getting back to centering my life around the true source of my life from which I would be living. This is why... And don't worry, we're not going to reinstate this practice here. Um, But this is why in the first century, uh, people disrobed before they were baptized. (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. (laughs) That would be awkward, wasn't it? Uh, 
So what, what, what they would do is they would have uh, basic regular robes. They would be discolored. Often they were brown. They would enter the baptismal waters. They would disrobe. They would be baptized. And then they would be given a white robe. Now, even though we would be uncomfortable with naked baptisms, uh, and rightly so, I love the beauty of the power of that metaphor. Because what it was saying is, you were taking off the costume of the old life and you're putting on the uniform of your new life. Wearing a costume and wearing a uniform are not the same things. We wear costumes to hide. We wear uniforms to show who we are. And so that is how, and so they believe that that practice comes from New Testament passages such as the one we're looking at here, where Paul literally uses the words, take off this old thing and put on this new thing. Before we can check our sin, we have to check our source. Then finally in verse 11, he brings it all, all together and he says, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, Christ is all and in all. One of the reasons we shun sins of exploitation and abuse is because Christ is all and in all. And this idea may be the most important of the morning. When we exploit and abuse people, we are exploiting and abusing our Lord. That is the consensus of the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Paul. That's why this bit of theology becomes so important. See, we're all running around justifying our treatment of the people, particularly if they have sexual orientations or lifestyles that are different from ours or that we determine unrighteous. And then we worry about little things like, well, I've got to quit cussing so much and I really shouldn't drink so much light beer and all of these kind of little petty morality things. When what God is concerned with is us getting, no, you can't ignore the way you treat your ideological enemies because I have made your devotion to me to be the exact measurement of the way you treat your ideological enemy. When we exploit and abuse other people, we exploit and abuse our Lord. This is really dramatically illustrated in Matthew 25. When Jesus says, if you're nice to the people in prison, you're being kind to me. And if you're unkind to the people in prison, you're being unkind to me. He says it explicitly there at the end of Matthew 25. When we exploit and abuse people, we are exploiting and abusing our Lord. But on the contrary, it's also true. When we love and serve people, we are loving and serving our Lord. Kind of reminds me as we get ready to close of the anatomy of temptation that James articulates in James chapter one. And I think that this is a helpful verse to support what Paul is saying here, even though it's two different authors. But look at James 15 verses 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. That's verse 14. 
than the consequences in verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now notice about those things about temptation. Number one, temptation is not sin. We are so ashamed. Like I promise if I would say, okay, let's, let's everybody stand up and I'm gonna start listing things that we were tempted with this week. And, 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 and the more, you, you know, the, 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 the more honestly and the more shameful your temptation, just keep standing till the end and we wanna see which one had the most heinous temptation. Now, how many of you participate in that exercise? I sure wouldn't. Now, why would we not though? It's because we believe that what we're tempted with says is sin itself or it says something about our identity. We have to get past that. We have to recognize temptation is not sin and temptation is not identity. It, our culture is very confused about this because our culture says impulse equals identity. That's not true and in fact, that idea would not carry into most areas of our lives. <laughs> How many of you thought about running somebody over at some point because they were stupid in their car? I have. I have revenge fantasies where I follow the person. And back when I was doing jujitsu, I had all kinds of fantasies of how I would jump them and choke them out maybe take off an arm and beat them with it. I mean, I have these thoughts. Does that make me someone who wants to go out and hunt people down and dismember them? No, it's a moment. It's a momentary impulse that made my non-thinking brain go out of its way in indulging its revenge fantasy. But it doesn't mean that's who I am. We have to own and understand that the temptation does not, is not a revelation of our identity. No, temptation is a, and I'm pretty sure this is the Greek meaning of the word temptation. I haven't found it yet, but I'm sure it's in there. Temptation is a common human experience in which desire seeks to bypass the thoughtful and spiritual part of our brain and goes directly to the desires of the thoughtless monkey mind. Now, I apologize to all monkeys who may be offended by that statement. Looking at you, Harry. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, uh, uh, th this is what, I had. honestly, our struggle with sin is usually thoughtlessness. It's very rare that a Christian thinks out, okay, logically, this is wrong reaction, and if I pursue this reaction, this is likely going to be the fruit of it. If we did that, we probably wouldn't do half the things we choose to, to do. The reason why sin catches us by, by uh, off guard is because it goes directly to that thoughtless part of our brain that's our monkey mind and just says, boom, act on that desire, act on that desire. That's temptation. And we all experience it. Paul is suggesting that victory in the battle with death, with the death consequences of sin is secured in, in verse 14, not in verse 15. So it becomes very practical. What is Paul saying? What is James saying? Rid yourself of the lifestyle habits that create the occasion for the desire that gives birth to sin. But most of us want to keep the lifestyle practices and only take them up to the very edge that's defined as sin and just make sure we don't step over it. That's a losing game, my friends. You're playing the wrong game. Paul says that's not where victory for, for temptation is not secured here. It's way back here. 
It's in being willing to rethink what are the lifestyle circumstances that tend to precede these occasions of temptation. That's where I need the Holy Spirit to begin to change my thinking. To put it another way, we must not simply understand that what behavior is sin. We must seek to become aware of the motive behind the behavior. Before we answer the question, how can I stop this destructive behavior? We must answer the question, why am I pursuing this behavior? You have to have an answer for that question in order to be motivated by any kind of redirection of your life. Therefore, a rhythm of prayer and meditation is absolutely essential to our growth because transformation begins with knowledge and awareness. It's exactly what Paul has been celebrating and speaking to. The practices of prayer and meditation ground us in an active awareness of our unity with God. And it is in living from that awareness that the atmosphere of our life begins to change. Not by attacking the behaviors, but by being conscious of the choice from which we are living. Are we living from an assumed unity with God or from an assumed disconnection from God that we somehow have to repair? Would you all stand with me and as the worship team comes forward, I would like for us to respond with a simple practice of meditation. Now, in the notes, I suggest that you do this in the evening before you go to bed. But right now, the team is gonna create, I mean, the, the team has practiced and prepared a moment here where they're gonna sing a song that's gonna help create some reflection. And so as you create that reflection, maybe you wanna go get some communion elements as you do this exercise. Maybe you want to kneel at your chair. Maybe you want to pace on the side of the church. That's all that's fine with me. But take a moment to engage in this practice so that we can not just get information from Colossians to add in our notebooks, but so that we can begin to live this thing, practically apply what we're reading here. So here's a simple way to meditate. At the end of each day or at the end of our service, ask the Holy Spirit to guide and direct your thoughts and to speak to you in the quiet place of your mind. Just, you don't have to do it that way. I find this helpful. It's a transition from my mind. I'm, I'm here now, Lord, to listen. Holy Spirit, direct my thoughts and begin to speak to me in that quiet place in my mind. Then prayerfully ask this question. Am I content with the thought that the way I treated and spoke to others today is the way I expressed my devotion to Jesus? Am I content with the thought that the way I treated and spoke to others today is the way I expressed my devotion to Jesus? If the answer is yes, then rest in the grace of the Spirit. But if the answer is no, then repent. Ask the Spirit to empower you to change the way you treat and speak to other people and make a commitment to apologize either right then or tomorrow. Sometimes it's fitting, I'll have a mindful thing that I need to go back and talk to someone. The vast majority of this conviction usually comes from the person that's laying in the bed next to me. <laughs> 